All right, let's open our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 6. So, as Marley said, we're going verse by verse through the book of Hebrews on Wednesday night, and we're actually in Hebrews chapter 6. So, I started in Hebrews um, the Sunday before we began our Wednesday study. Um, But as I knew it would happen, we kind of slow down because we're getting into actually what we're going to look at today in Hebrews chapter 6. We did verses 1 through 3 last week. I'm going to give you a real quick overview of verses 1 through 3. But the crux of our message is going to be in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 12, really 4 through 8. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 8 is probably, um, well, some people say it's the most difficult section of Scripture in the Bible. Um, There's a lot of debate about it. There's a lot of differing views about it, and we'll talk about some of that today. But it's like I always tell you, the best interpretation of the Bible is the Bible. And so when we come to difficult passages of Scripture, what we do is let the Bible interpret the Bible. Um, we can all have opinions, and we can read it at face value and think, okay, well, this is what I think it means. But in reality, unless we apply the whole counsel of God to all of the Word of God, we, we may come up with the wrong interpretation, and we may find ourselves believing something that the Bible doesn't actually teach. That's why I didn't want to rush through this section of Scripture, because I want to be purposeful in us Uh, Going through it, I want to encourage you to read it and study it on your own um, and let God uh, speak to your heart and deal with you. But just always remember this, the best interpretation of the Bible is the Bible. And having said that, I'm going to read to you now Hebrews chapter 6, and I'm going to read the first 12 verses of this chapter. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 1 through 12. Therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptisms, of laying on of hands, of resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment, and this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away, to renew them again to repentance, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame." For the earth which drinks in the rain that often comes upon it and bears herbs useful for those by whom it is cultivated receives blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and briars, it is rejected and near to being cursed, whose end is to be burned. But beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you. Yes, things that accompany salvation, though we speak in this manner. For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love which you have shown toward his name, and that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. 
And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end, that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the good news of Jesus Christ. We thank you that you give us hope and that you give us promise, not a temporary hope, not a promise that can fade away, but a sure hope and an eternal promise of life in Jesus Christ. We thank you for the salvation that you have given to us by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we thank you that that salvation is not fleeting, it is not momentary, it is eternal. And you have promised to keep us and to carry us and to persevere us to the very end for your glory. We thank you for that, Father. We ask that you would make our lives glorious so that we would be a people to bring glory and honor to your name. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so this is uh, a difficult section of Scripture. And the reason it's difficult is because throughout much of the history of the church, there has been this, um, well, we can call it a debate because it is a debate. And it has various names. Um, there are two men that, it, that bear its name. There's a guy by the name of Arminius who lived a little bit later, and then there's another guy by the name of Calvin, who lived uh, before Arminius. But this debate didn't begin necessarily with these two guys. These two guys didn't even live at the same time. This debate really is uh, one that began long before. And the question is, and what's difficult, or the difficulty that seems to arise in this scripture is the question, can a believer, can a true believer lose their salvation? So the question is, if you profess faith in Jesus Christ and you have truly been born again, is there a danger that you can lose your salvation? This, this is really the crux of the question here. And that question though it may seem like a simple question, <laughs> is really not. Because the implications, depending on the answer that we give to that question, the implications are very, very far-reaching about everything concerning our salvation. And even reaches, I believe, to the very nature of who God is and the promises that God has made to us. So this is really a very serious question, and it's why this is one of the scriptures in the Bible, these few verses, that are some of the most controversial, if not the most controversial, uh, men will, will debate. So, having said that, I'm going to tell you pr front, honestly, I am infinitely not qualified to... Um, to really enter into this debate. I'm just a little old me, right? Uh, but here's the good news. And here's not just the good news for me, but here's the good news for you. 
you have on the inside of you and I have on the inside of me the Holy Spirit of God. And the reality is, He is our teacher. Now, I'm your teacher. You have other teachers. It's not that we don't have men who teach us. But at the end of the day, it is the Holy Spirit of God that must lead us and guide us into truth. I can point you to truth, but I cannot open your eyes and make you see truth. Only God can do that. And so, this is the beauty and the power of the ministry of the Holy Spirit that lives on the inside of us. This is why Jesus said, it is to, my, it is to your advantage if I go away. He tells his disciples. And they are sad when Jesus tells them that he's going away. They're like, what do you mean you're going away? You can't go away. You're the Messiah. You've got to remain forever. He's like, no, I've got to go away. And they were really sad. But he says, it's to your advantage that I go away. Because if I go away, I will send the Comforter, the Holy Spirit. If I don't go away, he can't come. And Jesus said, I'm with you now. But listen, when the Holy Spirit comes, he's not only going to be with you, but he's going to be in you. And I also will be in you, and you will be in me. This, these are the verses. This is the discourse we read in John chapter 14, John chapter 15. This is the conversation Jesus is having with his disciples just before he's arrested and, and taken to be crucified. He's preparing them. So the good news for us is that the Spirit of God lives on the inside of us. And we're never going to answer all the questions we may have about the Bible, and that's okay. Because it's not, it's not about whether we get all of our questions answered. It's whether we're trusting in God even in the midst of our questions. So I want to begin, we're going to concentrate on verses 4 through 12, but I want to give you a quick summary of the first three verses because this is really important. So in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 1 through 3, the writer of Hebrews calls, I want you to remember this because this is going to apply to the rest of what we're going to talk about today. The writer of Hebrews calls to the reader's mind the beginning principles of Christ that are revealed and taught through the ceremonies of the law. So he is calling to their remembrance. These are Jews. These are Hebrews. They know the law. They've kept the law. They've been to the temple. They've offered sacrifice. This is their life. This is how they worship God. And so he's calling to their memory these ceremonies of the law. And he's saying these ceremonies of the law are the first principles, the beginning principles of the doctrine of Christ. Or in other words, these ceremonies of the law, these, these things of the Judaic law and the system of sacrifice, these were things pointing us to Jesus. This is what he's telling them. So he says, we're not going to lay again the foundation of these things, these elementary principles, these foundational principles. We're not going to lay these again because you as good Jews should already understand this. This is the beginning principles of Christ. Now, we live in 2019 in central Texas, far removed from the context that this letter was written 2,000 some odd years ago. And though you may love Jesus with all of your heart, it's very possible you don't really understand the roots of, of how we got the scriptures. 
I was talking to someone, this was several years ago, and, and, and they were saying, I didn't even know Jesus was a Jew. I just found that out. Yes, Jesus is a Jew. He was born to a Jewish mother. His father was God, but he was Jewish in his humanity, and he was raised a good Jew, keeping the law, just like every good Jew would. And here we are in our Western culture, and we sometimes don't make the connection with what's going on here. And so we can't read this letter written to the Hebrews from a Western point of view and try to understand it based on the theologies you might have been raised in. So, you know, when I came to faith in Christ, I was ushered into the charismatic Pentecostal movement. And so when I read about, you know, repentance and laying on of hands, my mind wants to go someplace far different than what the writer of Hebrews is talking about here. That was an amber alert on someone's phone. It's been going off all morning. So, um, so let's, let's, let's review this real quickly. Repentance is no longer learned through the sacrifice of animals. That's their context for repentance. But repentance is now learned through faith in Jesus Christ. The repentance and remission of sin is now through faith in Jesus Christ, not through the offering of an animal in the temple. Faith toward God is not just the faith of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that we look to, but faith toward God is found now through faith in Jesus Christ. You cannot have faith toward God if you do not have faith in Jesus Christ. This thing that says the Muslims worship the same God that we do, Several well-known, high-profile ministers have said this. They do not worship the same God that we do because they reject Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Therefore, they do not worship the same God that we do. They accept Jesus as a prophet of God, I mean, the Jews don't even do that. The Muslims do. The Muslims not only accept him as a prophet of God, the Muslims believe it's Jesus that's going to come back and actually judge the, the world. And then worship Allah. If you don't have faith in Jesus Christ, you do not have faith in God. Baptisms, which refer to the ceremonial washings of purification that the Jews practice, are now like animal sacrifices. It's a dead work. You can pour all the water, put all the soap you want on you, and you cannot cleanse your sin and your impurity by any amount of water or washing or purification. The only thing that can wash away your sin is the blood of Jesus. All of those washings, all of those purifications that involved water and blood were pointing us to Jesus. It's why we're baptized with water, but what truly cleanses us is the blood of Jesus. We're not going to lay again the foundation of the laying on of hands. This isn't about anointing people or, or giving them a spiritual gift. This is the transference of sin. This is the priest laying his hand on the head of a goat or a bull or whatever animal's being brought, and the symbolic transference of sin to that animal so that when the animal is sacrificed, the symbol is 
The animal paid the price. He took your sin, which is a perfect picture of what Jesus did for us. Jesus, the Lamb of God, took our sin within himself. He bore our sin. Our sin was transferred to him. And when he was sacrificed in our stead, his sacrifice atoned for all of your sin and all of my sin and all of the sin of God's people, past, present, and future. So we're not going to lay again the foundation of the doctrine of the laying on of hands. In other words, we look to Jesus, the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. He took our sin. The resurrection of the dead, no longer shrouded in mystery. Jesus was crucified and died publicly. He was resurrected on the third day and appeared to men publicly for 40 days. And then he publicly ascended to the heaven. What Jesus did, he did not do in secret. He didn't do it behind a bush. He didn't do it hidden. He did it right out in the open in public. He was raised, he was resurrected bodily, he ascended bodily, he's going to return bodily. You are, I am one day going to be resurrected bodily. That promise is sure because I have already been saved spiritually. And God is working right now to renew my mind. I'm hoping that yours is being renewed also. That's part of why we do all that we do. It's all part of it. So we're not going to lay again the resurrection of the dead because we know what's going to happen because Jesus led the way. Jesus showed us that we have the hope and the promise of resurrection. We're not going to lay again the foundation of eternal judgment. Eternal judgment is no longer to be feared by the follower of Christ. Christ came and judged the world and took upon himself the sin of all of his people. Jesus bore the full wrath of God in our place. And now if we are in Christ by grace through faith, we need not fear the judgment in Christ. Because in Christ, if we are in Christ, we can come with confidence to the very throne of grace. We are to be confident. We are to be bold in the day of judgment 1 John 4.17 says, as Jesus is, so are we in this world. We have this confidence. In this is love, that in the day of judgment, we have confidence because as he is, so are we in this world. As Christ is, so are we in this world. So by the cleansing blood of Christ, we come boldly to the very throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This is what Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16 said. So the writer is reminding them of the sins of their fathers, the unbelief of their fathers, the disobedience of their fathers, and he's warning them, don't make the same mistake your fathers did. Jesus paid the price. You can come now boldly, with confidence to the very throne of grace by the blood of Jesus. Your help is in Jesus. It's not in the temple. It's not in the sacrifice of animals. It's not in a priest laying his hand on an animal and transferring sin symbolically to some goat or bull or sheep or lamb. Your hope is in Jesus. That was true then, 
That is true today. And then the writer says, let us go on to perfection. So we're not going to lay again these dead works. Therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection. And then he tells them what he's, he's, they were not going to relay all of these things. And then he says this in verse 3, and this we will do if God permits. So here's what I want you to get here. Therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection, and this we will do if God permits. Let us go on to perfection is a call to move beyond these elementary principles, these beginning principles, to grow up to maturity in Christ. Just like the example he gave in the last chapter when he said, a babe drinks milk, but as a babe matures and comes to full age, it doesn't keep drinking milk, it eats solid food. So he's, he's re-emphasizing this, this truth, that we are to go on to perfection. This is the call to continue going forward, to continue growing in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. The writer then offers a condition, this we will do if God permits. If God permits, you might say, well, why wouldn't God permit that? Well, I'm going to tell you why he might not permit that. Because we have a history of him not permitting that. If God permits is a reminder to these Hebrews of the sin of unbelief their fathers committed in the wilderness. Their fathers in the wilderness were not permitted by God to go on. God did not allow them to go on to enter the land of promise. Even in their repenting before God, they were not allowed to go on due to their unbelief and God's refusal they wandered short of the promised land. Now, how do we know this? How do we know this is a context here? Because this is what the writer of Hebrews, this is what he was writing in the chapters just previous to this. He quotes the Psalms, he quotes the scriptures that talk about how they wandered, how they died in the wilderness, how God swore in his wrath that they would not enter in to his promise. So we see now, now we come to verses 4 through 6. We're going to park on those for just a moment. And in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 6, we see a fearful warning given to God's people. Let me read these three verses to you. Verse 4, for it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away to renew them again to repentance, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. Now, if we were people that believed that you could lose your salvation, this would be easy to interpret. If we believed that salvation was conditional upon you keeping it, then there really isn't a problem with this scripture here. It would be easy. We would just say, make sure you keep it. Make sure you're diligent. Make sure you work really hard, because if you don't, you could lose it. Because see here, 
But remember, the best interpretation of the Bible is the Bible. And we can't honestly read the Bible and take these three verses and throw out everything else that teaches us that our salvation in Jesus Christ is safe and secure because of what Jesus has done. And critics say, well, then you've got a contradiction there, Pastor. No, actually, we don't have a contradiction here. We have a warning. Now, the question is, who is the warning to? Is it to believers or is it to people who think they're believers, but they're really not? That's a possibility. There's people in church every Sunday morning who may think they're believers, but they're really not because they're in church for the wrong reasons. They don't really know the God that they're worshiping, and maybe they're coming for the wrong reasons. Maybe they think, maybe they think their being in church is somehow doing penance for them and earning them brownie points with God, and so they make an appearance at church every so often just to make sure they're still good with God. Because if something happens, you know, then I, I don't want to be on the outs with God because I may need him one day. And so we reduce God to this spiritual 911. When I'm in trouble, I call on God. When I'm not in trouble, I just keep his phone number in my, my, uh, my phone handy so I can just speed dial him real quick. No. That's wrong. That's not salvation. That's works. That's religion. That's dead works. That's you earning your salvation. That's you trying to make sure you keep your place with God. Listen, the only reason we have a place with God is because God gave us a place. The only reason we have any knowledge of God is because God opened our blind eyes and our deaf ears and gave life to our dead hearts and raised us from the dead and gave us eyes to see the author of life. That's the only reason we can even have this conversation today. And there's all kinds of spiritual gymnastics that are done with these verses, but I think we were really honest here. What the writer of Hebrews is describing here in verses 4, 5, and 6 are people that have truly come to faith in Christ. That's at least his assumption. That's who he's writing to. He's not writing to people who don't believe in Jesus. He's writing to people who believe in Jesus, and the assumption by the writer is you guys are really saved. And I'm talking to you like you really are saved, and I'm assuming that you really are saved. And I'm believing that you really did, what's he say here? Become enlightened. I believe that you really have tasted, not, and we're not talking like just, mm, no. This, this means you ate it. You ate it, you chewed it, you swallowed it, you processed it. People that have tasted the good word, People that have tasted the powers of the age to come, they've experienced the word. They've experienced the powers of the age to come. And if you've done that and you fall away, it is impossible to renew you again to repentance. So there's lots of questions here. What does all this mean? What does it mean to fall away? Well, that's a good question too. I'm glad you asked that. Because a lot of people believe that phrase there, to fall away, means what we call apostasy. Apostasy means that we were following Christ and now we're no longer following Christ. This word can mean that. 
But the reality, I didn't know this until I began to study this out. That phrase there, though, does not generally mean that. In fact, it's, it's not really used that way. It is a real falling away. There is a real falling that's taking place here. They're falling from something. So here's, here's what the writer of Hebrews is telling these believers. You are in danger of a real falling. You are in danger of experiencing loss, of experiencing something you don't want to have to experience. And he's calling to their remembrance, their fathers in the wilderness who were doing the same thing they're proposing or getting ready to do. And he's saying, the same thing that happened to your fathers, you don't want it to happen to you. So this is a fearful warning. For it is impossible if they fall away to renew them again to repentance since they crucify for themselves again the Son of God. This is a stern warning for the believer, not the unbeliever. Because you don't renew unbelievers again to repentance. Because unbelievers have never repented to begin with. That's why they're unbelievers. The only people you're going to renew again to repentance is a believer. Have you ever, have any of you ever repented more than once? I hope you have. I'll just confess to you, I, I couldn't even begin to count the number of times I have to repent. And if God ever said to me, I'm not going to renew you again to repentance, I'd be in big trouble. Because I've not come to a place in my life where I've ceased sinning. And I have no need of repentance. But the difference between perhaps me and some of the people that are being written to here is because I I know, not only do I know my need for repentance, but I know the place and the person in which there is hope for repentance. The only hope for repentance is in Jesus Christ. There is nothing else, there is no one else I can look to. There is nothing within myself I can look to. The only one I can look to for any hope of repentance is in Jesus Christ. So this is a stern warning for the believer. The context of this warning in light of all that the writer has laid out in this letter is in the context not of losing your salvation. It's in the context of their sanctification. Remember, he says, let us go on to perfection. That's not salvation. That's sanctification. That word perfection means maturity. He's saying, let us go on to maturity. Your spiritual maturity is the process of your sanctification. The reason you can enter into a process of sanctification or grow up spiritually is because you've been born. The reason these babies can grow up is because they have been born. We're not trying to birth these babies anymore. They're already birthed. Now we want to grow them up. When you're born again, after you're born again, that's the process of sanctification. That's when you need to grow up spiritually. So it's not we're trying to get you born again, again and again and again and again, because that's impossible. If every time a human baby made a mistake, we had to send them back to the womb to get born again, to try it again, that, that just doesn't, I mean, 
That's silly, right? That's not even possible, right? Thank you. That's the same way it is spiritually. You don't get born again and again and again and again. Once you're born again, you're born again. Now you're on the road to maturity. You're on the road to sanctification. What this scripture is about is about sanctification. Let us go on to maturity. And what's being called to mind here is to these Hebrews again is the sin of their fathers in the wilderness. In Hebrews chapter 4, verses 3 and 7, the writer quotes Psalm 49, I mean Psalm 95, recalling the sin of their fathers and the reason they did not enter into the land. This is all recorded for us in Numbers chapter 14. But along with the judgment of their sin, we see the mercy of God in responding to Moses' intercession on their behalf, just as Jesus now intercedes for us. Do you realize that? So when we read, and we're fixing to read some scripture out of Numbers chapter 14, when we read that and we see Moses interceding for the children of Israel, it's a picture of Christ interceding for us. And you better know, and we all better know, that Christ is in the heavenlies, seated at the right hand of majesty on high, and he intercedes ever for us. If Christ did not intercede on our behalf, if Christ did not shed his blood on our behalf, if Christ did not offer himself as a sacrifice on our behalf, we would have no hope, none whatsoever. Listen, Numbers chapter 14, verses 19 through 23. Pardon, this is Moses speaking to God. Pardon the iniquity of this people, I pray. So this is what happened. They come to the promised land. They go spy it out. They come back and they say, Nat, giant's too big. City's too strong. We're too small. Sorry, God, not going. Too dangerous. Two of the guys said, what, you guys crazy? God is bigger than the giants. He's bigger than these cities. God says he's going to give us the land. We need to trust God. We need to believe God. Let's go take the land. God gave it to us. No, no, no. Giant's too big. City's too strong. God too small. We're staying right here. God becomes angry. And God becomes so angry that he says, I'm just going to, I'm just going to be done with these people. I'm just going to kill them all. And Moses, in his love and compassion for the people of Israel, intercedes on their behalf. And here's what Moses says. Pardon the iniquity of this people, I pray, according to the greatness of your mercy, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt even until now. Then the Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word. But truly as I live, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. Because all these men who have seen my glory and the signs which I did in Egypt and in the wilderness have put me to the test now these ten times and have not heeded my voice, they certainly shall not see the land of which I swore to their fathers, nor shall any of those who rejected me see it. What I want you to notice is God says, I have pardoned them, but they will not see my land. God declares, I've pardoned according to your word, but they certainly shall not see the land I swore to their fathers. Psalm 78 will bring greater light. I'm not going to read the whole psalm. I'm just going to read. You can read the whole psalm. I encourage you to go home and read Psalm 78, but I'm just going to read to you verses 34 through 39. This is a psalm recounting these events of the children of Israel. 
And when we get to verse 34 of Psalm 78, the psalmist writes, when he slew them, talking about God slaying the children of Israel, because we don't like to talk about a God who does that today because God doesn't do that, right? We better believe he does. We better believe he's a just God and he will judge the sin of this world. And the only hope this world has is the church of God, the people of God humbling themselves and interceding on behalf of this world, just like Moses interceded on behalf of the children of Israel. When he slew them, then they sought him, and they returned and sought earnestly for God. Then they remembered that God was their rock and the Most High God, their Redeemer. Nevertheless, they flattered him with their mouth, and they lied to him with their tongue, for their heart was not steadfast in him, with him, nor were they faithful in his covenant. Look at verse 38. But he, not but them, because what did they deserve? They deserved utter wrath. But look what the psalmist writes. But he, but God, being full of compassion, forgave their iniquity and did not destroy them. Yes, many a time he turned his anger away and did not stir up all his wrath. In his wrath, he said, you will not enter the promised land. But he had compassion and did not utterly destroy them. For he remembered, verse 39, for he remembered that they were but flesh, a breath that passes away and does not come again. That's who we are. We are just a breath that passes away and does not come again. Then when we get to verses 7 and 8, we see a contrast of blessing, blessing or burning. This letter, remember, is addressed to believers. The warning in verses 4 through 6 is not of believers losing their salvation, but of believers losing their reward of believers being stopped from going on to perfection or to full maturity. The context of the passage here is not salvation, but sanctification. And I believe this can be affirmed in the following verses. Listen to verses 7 and 8. Hebrews chapter 6. For the earth. So he goes on and he says, he, he utters this warning in verses 4, 5, and 6. And then he uses this analogy, an agricultural uh, metaphor here. For the earth which drinks in the rain that often comes upon it and bears herbs useful for those by whom it is cultivated receives blessing from God. The earth receives blessing from God. The earth which drinks in the rain receives blessing from God. But if it bears, and then it says it bears herbs useful for those by whom it's cultivated. But if it bears thorns and briars, it is rejected and near to being cursed whose end is to be burned. This is not indicating two different pieces of land. This is not two different pieces of land we're looking at here. This is the same piece of land. And what we're looking at are two different potential outcomes for this same piece of land. It's the same piece of land. The difference is what's growing, what's being produced through this land. So it's not indicating two different pieces of land, but one piece of land contrasting two different potential outcomes. The outcome is determined by whether we go on to maturity or whether we remain stuck in prolonged immaturity, whether we're going to keep drinking milk or whether we're going to go on to solid food. The former 
leading to blessing and fruitfulness, the latter leading to God's judgment of our sin, of loss and of barrenness. But I do not believe eternal damnation here in this particular case. It is rejected and near to being cursed, but not cursed, whose end is to be burned. In this context, this is what men would do with a piece of land that was filled with thorns and briars. They'd burn it. And what was the point of burning it? They didn't burn it so they could walk away from it and not use the land. They burned it to burn out all of the unproductive, undesirable things so that they could come back in and sow in the desirable. This is very similar to what we see in John 15 when Jesus is giving the picture of the vine and the branches. And he says, I am the vine and you are the branches. My father is the vine dresser. And what does the vine dresser do? He prunes the branches. And what's the point of pruning the branches? To make the vine more fruitful. What's the point of burning the land here? The point of burning the land was to make it more fruitful. It's rejected and near to being cursed, but it's not cursed. So we see this picture of sanctification, that God wants his children to go on to maturity, to not get stuck in immaturity, to not get stuck in sin, in disobedience. That's what children, that's what immature children do. And this is why we have parents that discipline their children so that their children do not get stuck in sin and disobedience. And if you don't discipline your children, then your children are going to get stuck in sin and disobedience. Well, if I discipline my children, then they're going to be mad at me. Well, big whoop. They should get mad at you. That's a sign of their immaturity. And the fact of you disciplining them is helping them get beyond that so that they can grow up and move on and become fruitful and productive. God loves us enough to discipline us. Parents, love your children enough to discipline them. So then we see this this idea of the burning of the land. Do you know that the Bible says that our works are going to be tested by fire? Listen to this. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 10 through 15. Paul writing, According to the grace of God, which was given to me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another builds on it. But let each one take heed how he builds on it. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become clear for the day, that is the day of judgment, will declare it because it will be revealed by fire and fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire." Guess what's going to burn up? Not the gold, silver, precious stone. It's the wood, hay, and stubble. 
We will all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians. But we're not going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ for our sin to be judged. We're going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ for our works to be judged. And whatever sort of works they are is going to be determined by fire. When the fire is applied, if it's wood, hay, and stubble, guess what? Burned to ash, gone. If it's gold, silver, and precious stone, do you know what fire will do to that? It will refine it and make it even more pure. Here is a clear warning of continuing in sin and disobedience, especially in those things that call the work of Christ into question. Our works will be judged. There is a real danger of loss, and God can decide that he will not allow us to go on just like he made the decision that he would not allow the children of Israel to enter the promised land. Even Moses did not enter the promised land. Now, we know Moses wasn't, didn't go to hell. Moses was just prevented from entering the promised land because of his sin, the Bible says. But later in the New Testament, when Jesus comes, we see Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. Who is with him there? Moses is with him. So we know what happened to Moses eternally, but because of sin, God refused to allow him to enter into the promised land. God is not unjust. God is justified. I want you to hear this, church. God is justified to allow any and all of us to suffer his wrath because of sin. That's what we deserve. But we are not going to get what we deserve if we are trusting in Jesus. Here is good news. God is not unjust to forget us and our labor of love toward his name and faith. After the stern warning of God's judgment for walking in sin and unbelief, the writer of Hebrews turns the focus onto the mercy of God and the faithfulness of God to do what is just toward those who by faith labor and love toward his name. It's not that your labor is perfect. It's not that your labor is without falling and failing. It's that by faith you labor and love toward his name. And God honors that for his namesake, for his namesake, not for my namesake, but for his namesake. He honors that because of Jesus Christ. Because God knows that we are but flesh and we are like breath that passes away. And he has had grace and mercy upon us in Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 9 through 12. But beloved, we are confident. So after the stern warning, after this talking of burning, because of what the ground is producing, the writer of Hebrew brings it back and he says to them in a word of encouragement, but beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you. Yes, things that accompany salvation. Though we speak in this manner, for God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love which you have shown toward his name and that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. You have and you do. Even though you want to go do the stupid thing, the sinful thing, don't do that. 
Keep doing what you've been doing. Keep trusting in Jesus. Keep ministering toward his name and love and keep ministering to one another through faith in Jesus Christ. Verse 11, and we desire that each one of you should show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end. In other words, don't grow weary while doing good. Don't stop. Don't quit, but remain diligent. Keep pressing on to the full assurance of hope until the end that you do not become sluggish like your fathers did in the wilderness, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. And we're going to stop there, but then he goes right into talking about Abraham, who did what? What did Abraham do? Abraham, through faith and patience, endured for a long time before he saw the promise come. Our problem is we're not very good in enduring because we grow impatient. And when we grow impatient, we grow sluggish. And when we grow sluggish and impatient, we begin to fall away. So God in his grace and in his mercy is warning us, don't do that. Keep going on to maturity. Because we will stand before God in judgment. But it will be our work, not our sin, that will be judged. And though sin has consequences, and our sin can bring real pain, real destruction, and real loss to the life of the believer, if we are in Christ, sin and the sin man is no longer our identity. Now in Christ, righteousness and the man of righteousness, who is Jesus Christ, he is our identity. If we have been diligent in our work and labor of love toward his name and ministering to the saints, that is to, that's to one another. We are the saints. Sunday morning is not just about you coming and having your personal time with Jesus. Sunday morning is about you coming and worshiping the God in the context of a corporate body to minister, to encourage one another. Nick Grayling, you have greatly encouraged me by coming to worship today. If we have been diligent in our work and our labor of love toward his name, in, in ministering to God and to one another, we can be assured that God will not forget those works done in faith and in love. They will stand the test in the day of judgment because they are done as unto the Lord in Christ by faith. They are gold, silver, and precious stone, and they will not pass away, but they will be refined. But the good news is God will not allow to stand those things that are wood, hay, and stubble. And we may think it's not graceful of God to burn those things out of our life, but I promise you it is absolutely graceful of God to do that. And if we have demonstrated that work and labor of love toward his name and to his body, it is because God in his grace has saved us and filled us with his love and his power by his Holy Spirit. Because apart from Christ, we can do nothing. That's what Jesus said to his disciples in John chapter 15. We are to remain diligent to the full assurance of hope until the end. We are to resist becoming sluggish, we are to imitate those who by faith and patience inherit the promise. If we shrink back, our faith is not, our work is not in faith. 
and we are in danger of being burned up. But even that is a grace of God if it produces fruitfulness in our life. If we shrink back, we may find ourselves in the same place as Israel with God not allowing us to go on to perfection. But we are confident of better things concerning you, things that accompany salvation as individuals and as a body of believers. Therefore, we are to purpose not to shrink back and to seek repentance and to seek obedience in Christ. I pray we will be a people who will press into God and seek to hunger and to thirst for the things that make for our growth into full maturity in Christ, that we would be a people who would purpose and desire to grow in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Amen. I want you to prepare to come to the table. You don't have to be a member of Christ's Fellowship Church, but a member of the body of Christ. So as you come, come in faith. I want you to come. I want you to discern the body all around you. I want you to think about this warning. That is a real warning written to a real church for his church today. It was written to them, but it was written for us today. I want you to come purposing in your heart that you're going to go on to maturity. But I want you to know that the only way you will do that is by the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Church, come to the table. Let's stand. I want to remind you that, you know, as we, as we go through these scriptures, as I preach and teach throughout the weeks, I am the pastor of Christ Fellowship Church. I'm responsible for or the people that God, the sheep that he has placed here. But I want all of us to understand that we represent a greater body of believers. And that what you do and how you live your life and how you worship God, and whether you go on to maturity or not, really does have an impact on the greater body of Christ. A whole generation died in the wilderness because of sin and unbelief that began with 10 men. And for 40 years, they died. God raised up a new generation. A nation was carried away captive for 70 years because of sin and, and unbelief. And there were righteous people, believing people, faithful people who suffered in that captivity and it was not their sin, it was not their unfaithfulness that carried them away captive. It was the sin and the unfaithfulness of many others. And my point is, we are part of a greater body. We live in a nation that is in trouble. And the only hope our nation has is Jesus Christ. And until the body of Christ begins to take seriously who we are and what we are called to, we run the risk 
of experiencing God's judgment should God say, I will not let this generation go on any longer to maturity. He'll just let us suffer until he raises up another one. I don't want to be a part of that. I want to be faithful. I want to encourage you to be faithful. I want you to be faithful. I want you to encourage those around you to be faithful. And believe God that God can change not only individual hearts, not only congregations, but God can change nations. He holds the king, the heart of the king in his hand, and he, he directs it as he directs the course of a river. But that is contingent upon the people of God humbling themselves and seeking the face of God. So I want to encourage you to do that, to believe that, to seek after that, to desire and to seek to go on to maturity, to not get stuck in immaturity and sin. Do it for your sake. Do it for the sake of your brothers and sisters. Do it for the sake of the greater body, but most of all, do it for his namesake and for his glory. Because if he is not our chief motivation, then we need to look at our hearts and consider what, what, it, what it is that's motivating us or not. May our motivation be Christ and the glory of Christ. And if it is, then we will all benefit. And so will our nation for many generations to come. Amen.